Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. At Christmas time and New Year on this edition, we have a look at what makes boats so attractive to owners and those who sail them. While one has to be careful these days in how the feminine form is described, where these boats are concerned, this sailor has no reservations. They have a great, there's a fantastic multi-generational folklore about them. Many famous people sail them. But most of all, they are drop-dead gorgeous. And another sailor who's owned and sailed the same boat for 40 years bought it for a particular reason. His selling point was, he said, you go out in her with your gin and tonic and I'll guarantee you you'll never spill it. So he said, sold. Ah yes, there are many reasons to own and love a boat, where being old is no drawback to being considered beautiful. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme and comes to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yall on the East Cork coastline, the town which historically was once the biggest and most important commercial port on the south coast of Ireland. The programme brings together, through the Community Radio Network, the maritime community around Ireland, an island people, a community bounded by the sea around us. You're very welcome to contact the programme. Our phone number is 0872-555-197 and email thisislandnation at gmail.com. That's phone 0872-555-197 and email thisislandnation at gmail.com. Let's hear why one man has owned the same boat for 40 years. He's Michael Murphy who owns Shelley D, a 30-foot moody yacht which is a legendary part of the South Coast sailing season. His lengthy ownership was marked with a presentation to him by the South Coast Offshore Racing Association, of which he's secretary and treasurer at their annual general meeting. And a lovely photograph of her under full sail by sailing photographer Bob Bateman was presented to Michael Murphy, who told me why Shelley D has been with him for so long. Because it's the most practical boat we ever bought. It doubles as a racing boat, a cruising boat, and when we live in Skull, a ferry. Because we have so many islands adjacent to us, we can load up on the pier. If we have too many on board, engine has to go. Uh, this is why the way we're on our third engine at the moment, so we get a good, uh, good bit of mileage out of that. Um, we can do the normal cruising down the coast when we head up to Dingle, Castle Dunbar, anywhere like that, and come Cavswick or club racing, put up a decent sail area in her. She's very good downwind, carries a big kite, nice and comfortable. You'll rarely ever broach, and if you do it, your own fault. And why get rid of a boat like that? It's the most comfortable thing. When we met um, the designer Angus Primrose on the stand, a moody stand, in 1978 in Southampton Boat Show, the one thing, he's a big, burly man with a big beard in him, and we were looking at the boat. Not terribly experienced. We did have a previous boat, but we looked, uh, this was a big hunk of a boat. And his selling point was, he said, you go out in her with your gin and tonic, and I'll guarantee you, you'll never spill it. <laughs> So he said, sold. <laughs> but you never get fed up with having the one boat for so long? No, because we keep fiddling with her. We know it backwards. As I said, we're on engine number three. Um, luckily enough, the, well, the rig has been changed, but no other damage. 
and um, when she's practical it, it's like getting a car that you love and you keep it and it comes true and suddenly becomes a veteran and if you keep it long enough it becomes a vintage so I'm not too sure what the equivalent of boats in relative to the car facility is but she's had her 40th year she's looking prim and proper we're still sailing here in Crosshaven and we hope to see the next two weekends out and that'll be the end of her 40th year so there's no possibility of Shelley D being moved on Doubtful. I would think, unless we adopt the old Viking tradition, and when we go, maybe she goes with us. <laughs> so we're not too sure. So there you are. Love is in the air at Christmas time, and you've now heard why a sailor loves his boat. Michael Murphy and Shelley D. Now, the condition of our oceans is important to all of us, but here, coming to you, is a warning that should concern everyone. So, having caught your attention with that, Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, explains in detail what an Irish survey shows about persistent pollutions in the seas. A new study led by the Goway Mayo Institute of Technology and recently published in the Marine Pollution Bulletin has shown high concentrations of persistent pollutants in stranded killer whales in Ireland. This publication is part of a PhD study into legacy and emerging pollutants in whales and dolphins in Ireland. Overfishing, marine debris, ocean noise and the effects of climate change have all been raised as critical issues affecting our world's oceans. But by far, the build-up of persistent pollutants in our top predators is probably the most challenging and insidious issue. Persistent pollutants such as pesticides, PCBs and brominated flame retardants are amongst those groups of long-lasting chemicals that biomagnify up the food chain and bioaccumulate in top predators. The blubber of whales and dolphins rich in lipids is the perfect store for these lipid-loving organochlorines. Females can pass on some of these pollutants to their young during gestation and lactation. In heavily polluted populations, the first one or two calves are born with such a high pollutant burden they die, but the levels in the female declines. Subsequent calves reduce the levels still further until concentrations passed on from the female doesn't kill the calf and they survive. Concentrations in males builds up throughout their life, which can be 50 to 60 years for a killer whale. The effects of persistent pollutants such as DDD and other organochlorines in our environment was brought to mass public attention in the 1960s by Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring. Through the 1980s, the effects of PCBs on mammalian reproduction led to the production being banned. New chemicals designed to be highly stable and therefore resist degradation are constantly being manufactured, utilised and ultimately discarded or leaked into our environment. While these toxic environmental effects are not intended, and many of these chemicals play important roles in our sophisticated, highly technical lifestyles, the long-term effects on marine animals and ultimately us are profound and frightening. Studies in the United Kingdom have shown harbour porpoises with high levels of persistent pollutants are more likely to die of infectious diseases. Striped dolphins in the Mediterranean may have a reduced immune response linked to high concentrations of persistent pollutants, which make them susceptible to a distemper virus, leading to large-scale epizootics. In some parts of the world, stranded whales and dolphins are handled as toxic waste as the levels of pollutants in their bodies exceed thresholds which define how this material is handled and disposed of. Once in the marine environment, they are practically impossible to remove and will degrade only over centuries. 
The health of our top predators reflects the health of our oceans. If species such as killer whales, beluga, harbour porpoise and striped dolphins are compromised and in some cases rendered infertile by persistent pollutants, this is a huge wake-up call to examine not only how we dispose of our waste, but our lifestyle. A sobering thought as we enter a new decade. This is Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Well and Dolphin Group and GMIT for This Island Nation. And GMIT, the Galway Mayo IT, IT Sligo and Letterkenny IT are working towards becoming a technological university for the West and Northwest. Now Justin Marr has a story about a vet. That's a veterinarian. This one went to see as a vet aboard a livestock boat and you mightn't hear too many stories from such vessels. But here's one. Many people will remember the television series All Creatures Great and Small. The man who wrote the book on which the series was based was a vet on a ship. In 1961, a Yorkshire-based vet called Alf White, better known now by his name James Herriot, was engaged on board the Danish livestock carrier Iris Clausen for a voyage from Hull to the Soviet Union port of Klaipeda in the Baltic. An experienced friend advised, you get a glimpse of the country through the eyes of a seaman and you meet the ordinary Russians, the commercial people, the workers. Harriet was sent to the 563 gross registered tonnage vessel to look after almost 400 valuable breeding pedigree Romney Marsh and Lincoln sheep worth £20,000 and to deal with the administration at discharge. The vet, who had seafarer's blood, recalled his arrival at Hull Docks. To my untutored eyes, the Iris Clausen looked like a toy oil tanker and it was difficult to imagine her crossing an ocean or weathering a storm. However, he was agreeably surprised with his cabin and noted that the sheep, carried in pens on two decks, were well bedded in straw and with lots of hay to eat. At sea, he wrote, the cabin had become a place of shakes and shudders, indefinable bumps, rattles and groans. But in a subsequent storm, he proved to have the best sea legs and stomach. Throughout, the cook proved a culinary genius. I felt I might have been eating at the Ritz, he wrote. On entering the Kiel Canal, a Dutch pilot and German policeman boarded the latter to ensure that no manure and soiled bedding was thrown overside to pollute the waterway. Entering the Baltic, a real storm was brewing. Harriet ably describes the bucking bronco antics and resultant mayhem on a small ship affected by storm. Concerned for his charges, he suppressed a rising panic as he examined them. But professionalism rationalized the piteous general condition as stress. I had a few bottles of the new wonder drug cortisone, he wrote but I had never tried it in a case like this. Rationing the dose and injecting the animals with difficulty, after an agonising two-hour wait above decks and full of anxiety, he discovered they were all normal, right back where they were before the trouble started. Alongside in Klaipeda, Harriet noted two heavily armed guards at the gangway, both of whom answered his salutations with a completely impassive, dead countenance. Their mood evidently matched the wider surroundings but at least the officials who boarded were all handshakes and smiles. Before accepting the sheep, the local vet adopted an intriguing, thorough and slow method of examination, involving a stock of bizarre-shaped two-minute thermometers, Vaseline clips on string and a watch. Several tons of feed remained unused, which was all offloaded gratis. Anxious to go ashore, the ever-gentlemanly captain accompanied Harriet as dusk settled. 
Ignoring his sound advice in order to reach town quicker, Harriet unwisely sought what is often the seafarer's friend, a hole in the fence, only to end up facing the hideous gaping maw of an Alsatian guard dog straining at the limit of its chain. Iris Clausen eventually departed Clypeda for a consignment of 800 pigs from what was then Stettin to Lubeck. Travelling home from Lubeck, Harriet reflected, When I looked back on the last ten days, my warmest and most vivid memories were of the ship, the animals, and the people aboard her. Originally built in 1959, Iris Clausen was converted to a general cargo ship in 1974, and under the name Coast Trader, ran aground and foundered without casualty off the Norwegian coast near Holmengra Lighthouse in 1989, with a cargo of steel plates. But in the guise of the plucky little livestock transporter, she lives on in the pages of James Herriot's book, The Lord God Made Them All. And from a livestock boat to swans, which are beautiful creatures gliding along many of our waterways. On the Royal Canal, as you drive into Dublin, for example, and I see and admire them where I live at Monkstown on the edge of Cork Harbour. And there are many other locations and different species of swans. Early next month, an international swan census will be undertaken, which happens only once every five years. Brian Burke, Project Officer at Birdwatch Ireland, tells us the details from their offices in Kilcool, County Wicklow. This January, Birdwatch Ireland will be coordinating a census to count every single Hooper and Buick swan in Ireland in just one weekend. The International Swan Census happens every five years, where surveyors in countries across Northern Europe go out on the same weekend to count all of their migratory swans. The two swan species in question are winter visitors to Ireland, in contrast to the more familiar mute swan, which is the only swan species that remains in Ireland throughout the whole year. Every winter, hundreds of volunteer birdwatchers and staff from Birdwatch Ireland and the National Parks and Wildlife Service count waterbirds at wetland sites across the country as part of the Irish Wetland Bird Survey, known as IWEBS. IWEBS is coordinated by Birdwatch Ireland and funded by the National Parks and Wildlife Service. The survey does a very good job of monitoring birds at wetlands, but the swans and geese that migrate to Ireland for the winter often spend the day feeding away from wetlands, usually on wet grassland pastures in the wider countryside. Because of this, we need a more targeted approach to monitor their numbers. Birdwatchers taking part in the census will not only be checking their local wetlands for swans, but also other grassland sites known to have been used by Hooper and Buick swans in previous years. These birds are very site faithful, so they tend to return to the same sites every winter. The last international swan census took place in January 2015. The fact that the swan census is carried out in multiple countries across the species range over the same few days minimises the risk of swans being counted twice if they move between countries over the winter and allows us to identify key differences between countries that may inform their conservation. The results of the 2015 census revealed that hooper swan numbers had increased throughout their wintering range. Hooper swans breed in Iceland during the summer and spend the winter in Ireland, Britain and the Isle of Man, as well as in Iceland itself. In total, there were 34,004 Icelandic hooper swans recorded across their wintering range in 2015. Nearly 12,000 of these were in the Republic of Ireland, with a further 3,500 in Northern Ireland. Interestingly, it was found that numbers had increased the most in the southwest of England, despite Ireland formerly being the most important wintering location for this species, and the number of juvenile birds in Irish flocks being consistently high. This suggests that birds are increasingly choosing to spend the winter in England rather than Ireland or Scotland. There were interesting differences in habitat usage between countries too. 
Around 70% of Hooper swans in the Republic of Ireland were recorded on pasture, but only 12% of those in Britain, where arable crops were the favoured feeding sites. Buick swans are also monitored as part of the census. Our Buick swans come from Russia, and until the middle of the last century they outnumbered Hoopers in Ireland each winter. Their numbers have rapidly decreased since, from a couple of thousand in the 1980s to only 21 birds during the 2015 census. This was initially because of what was known as short-stopping, where the birds no longer needed to travel as far as Ireland to find suitable wintering habitat as a result of increasing temperatures elsewhere. In more recent years, though, the Buick swan population has been declining globally, not just in Ireland. It'll be interesting to see if any Buick swans are recorded in Ireland this January, or if we've lost them as a regular Irish wintering species. The 8th International Swan Census takes place on the weekend of the 11th and 12th of January 2020, all across Ireland. Surveys in the Republic of Ireland will be coordinated by Brian Burke of the iWebs team at Birdwatch Ireland, and Graham McElwain of the Irish Hooper Swan Study Group will coordinate counties in Northern Ireland. If you see any Hooper or Buick swans around the second weekend of January, please get in touch with Birdwatch Ireland, either by calling 01-281-9878 or emailing bburke at birdwatchireland.ie, giving details of the location and the number of swans seen. Brian Burke there of Birdwatch Ireland. And now a story which links both yards in Malahide and Dunlera with one in Kilrush, County Clare with Scattery Island on the Shannon Estuary and a house and two people who lived it in Dunlera and the man who lived there also and designed the boat which is 114 years old and is now back sailing again on the Shannon. It's a long story. It's the beautiful one of the Nanine, the Dublin Bay 21 class, the restoration of which I told you about a few months ago, done at Kilrush by Stephen Morris. And so, the story of the house and the people linked with it. Hal Sisk, a leader in preserving history and traditional boats, and Anne Griffin in County Clare, the granddaughter of James Clancy, who built the 21s. Anne Griffin takes up the story. I was born in number three, Charlemont Avenue, Dunleary, and I lived there until I got married. Moved down the end of the road to Roby Place, and where does Hal live? For the past 11 years, 3 Charlemont Avenue, that's where I live. <laughs> so it's just a circle, a full circle gone, I said, and it's a lovely thing, you know, to have at my age to know that there's something there of my grandfather's. We had a boat yard in Malahide and in Dunleary, but my father was a naval man. He went into the Navy. My brothers are all naval men. And I have only one of my own that's interested in the sea. <laughs> but we're happy to say that uh, of the nine boats that I've traced as having been built by James Clancy in the Lloyd's Register of Yachts, there are another two which have survived, Pauline and Anita, both Hoth 17-foot uh, um, heel boats. So three of the nine boats of James Clancy your grandfather have actually survived. And actually there's one still sailing in um, Hoth, I believe. There's two, two. Yeah, two, two of them, yeah. yeah, that are still sailing. And as it is, I married seamen from Scattery Island, so the sea is all around me, you know. But this uh, boat, the, the relaunch of the Nanine, is only the start of a marvellous project. This is the revival of a classic one design. Why such pride in them? Well, they were uh, a one design class which were sailed in Dublin Bay from 1903 to 1983. So they have a great, there's a fantastic multi generational folklore about them. Many famous people sailed them. But most of all, they are drop dead gorgeous. And drop dead gorgeous, you oh, agree absolutely, with? Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. <laughs> 
Plenty of beauty and drop-dead gorgeous on this programme this Christmas time. Houses can Dan Griffin, and isn't that unusual? A house of both the builder and the people joined in a unique story. Now Justin Marr runs up other maritime news from at home and overseas. The Marine Institute has signed a contract with the Spanish shipyard Astilleros Armon in Vigo to build the Institute's new marine research vessel. It will cost 25 million euro, be 52 meters long, based in Galway and used by other state agencies and third-level institutes to undertake fisheries, plankton, oceanographic and environmental research and surveys. The Marine Institute says it will be engineered to endure harsh conditions and the punishing weather encountered in the northeast Atlantic and be able to spend 21 days at sea at a time. The new vessel will be a sister ship to the 65-metre RV Celtic Explorer and will replace the Institute's Celtic Voyager. Your lifeboat volunteer, John Innes, has been honoured for 32 years' service. He joined the RNLI in 1987 and has helmed three Atlantic-class lifeboats at the station, where he's also been the training coordinator. He spoke to this programme about one of his many memorable moments. A friend of mine had bought a new boat and he asked me to go with him just to get the boat up and running and get comfortable in the boat. And as we were heading down past the lighthouse, we came across a speedboat that was stopped in the middle, middle of the channel and the two guys had an AA road atlas out and they were looking at it and they were scratching their heads so we went over to them and we had a chat with them and, and I remember them pointing at the lighthouse going that's Roach's point isn't it isn't Cork up there and I went to the guy who was with me I went just get out your phone there and call the lifeboat <laughs> um, job for the lads here because they'd run out of fuel and um, they thought they could paddle for Cork even though they were at the entrance to the Oil Harbour the penny didn't drop that the lighthouse was on the wrong side of the harbour even to begin with you know if they had gotten further there's a long gap between here and Ballycotton and there was a lot of very very lonely spots out there between here and there and you could have had every lifeboat on the coast helicopters searching the coastline looking for these guys at 11 o'clock at night in the dark we happened to stumble on them at about quarter to nine in the evening and um, they were lucky that we did you know Everybody should do something in a volunteering capacity, I think, you know, it really, you know, wouldn't it be a great world if everybody gave something? And, um, you know, when you give something back and you get a result like that, you know, it cost nothing of me. I was out there anyway, I came across this situation. It could have been a very, very serious situation. We prevented that from happening just by being there. And I think the training we got was second to none. I mean, you still get absolutely top-notch training from the likes of the RNLI. To help to give something back, you do get a warm, fuzzy feeling when it's when it's all over. You have the bad ones, but you have the good ones, and thankfully the good ones outweigh the bad ones. And finally, a river almost a thousand miles long, that's 1,600 kilometres, has been found under the frozen Greenland ice sheet. Scientists believe it is carrying water from central Greenland to that country's northern coastline. It's at a depth of 900 feet, about 300 metres on a valley floor. And now Miles Kelly brings us the latest news from the angling world. The big news from Inland Fisheries Ireland is our Christmas giveaway of sorts. €1,245,000 for angling projects. There's €240,000 available from the National Strategy for Angling Development for making angling accessible, developing angling tourism and promoting angling as a key outdoor activity. 
and on top of that, there's over a million euro from the Midland Fisheries Fund and the Salmon and Sea Trout Conservation, Rehabilitation and Protection Fund for a whole range of river rehab and enhancement programmes. These can be fish passage improvement projects, spawning enhancement and building in-stream structures, river bank protection, fencing and river corridor improvement. We're also funding the removal and control of aquatic invasive species and even feasibility studies. Our feasibility developments are screening for appropriate assessment. This is great news for angling clubs around the country who can register an expression of interest or apply online at fisheriesisland.ie. So thinking hot sound, there's a lot that can be done with this money. In angling news, there have been some great fishing reports this December. Unfortunately, the recent storms have really pushed up water levels and flooding has really slowed things down in Ireland. It's been even tougher on the coast as big seas and high winds have made fishing completely impossible at times. The great thing in fishing though is how much the difference a couple of days can make. I'm sure there'll be a chance to get out again over the holidays. And we'll hear more from Miles Kelly in the next programme and there is a special offer from Fisheries Ireland for the first salmon caught when the new season starts on the 1st of January. Details on the Fisheries Ireland website. At Christmas time and the New Year, with festive swim events, it's important to take care. The Coast Guard and the RNLI have all issued safety messages. Here's John Leach, Chief Executive of Water Safety Ireland, to add his words of advice. The Christmas season is a time when thousands of people around the country will find themselves in, near or around water for a variety of reasons. Many will take to our waters in support of our sponsored swims for charitable causes on Christmas Day, St Stephen's Day and New Year's Day. Charity swimmers occasionally take chances beyond what is acceptably safe, finding themselves left with little strength to climb out of the water due to cold. Cold winter waters can cause cold shock and hypothermia can set in within a short period, especially if there is a high wind chill factor overwhelming the fittest of swimmers. Immediately before the swim, people should throw cold water on themselves and always ease into the water gradually, slowly introducing their body to the low temperature. If you see a person in difficulty, do not attempt a rescue for which you are not trained. Use nearby public rescue equipment, such as a ring boy, uh, to effect such a rescue. People organising these charity swims should ensure that they provide comprehensive details of each event to the Irish Coast Guard and the local Gardaí. Each event should have a safety officer appointed who will advise those concerned on safety and have the ultimate responsibility for making decisions in relation to the swim going ahead or not. Many participants will not have swum since the summer and the temperature of the water has now dropped considerably. It is a fallacy that alcohol will keep you warm when entering the water. In fact, it has a reverse effect and could kill you. No alcohol should be taken before or immediately after the swim. Cold shock is the most significant contributing factor in drownings on our island nation with our temperate climate. Hypothermia is also a factor in drownings because the temperature of the water at this time of the year will be below 6 degrees Celsius in fresh water and 11 degrees Celsius in seawater. So, get in, get out and warm up. Ensure that you have safe access and egress with appropriate shallow shelving beaches, steps, slipway or ladders as appropriate. Elderly people should be mindful that steps leading into the water might be dangerous due to the growth of algae. Organisers must ensure that they have had the access and egress cleaned in advance of the swim to avoid such slips and falls. Fancy dress outfits can seriously impair your ability to float, so please do not wear them when you're actually swimming. 
So, until next month, enjoy your charity swim and always wear a life jacket on or near the water and use your influence to further reduce the number of drownings on our island nation. John Leach of Water Safety Ireland ending this edition of This Island Nation produced at CRY 104FM Yall on the East Cork coastline with technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Convara FM Radio Cork of Boschgeen and Clare Kilkenny City Radio West Limerick 102 FM, May Community Radio in Castle Bar, Eris FM in Belmullet, Cork City Community Radio, West Cork FM and Community Radio Bear Island. Podcasts, iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the Marine Times. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. The programme email address is thisislandnation at gmail.com and you can contact us by phone on text to 0872 555197. That's email nation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872 555197. Until our next programme, from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. And until then, from Justin Marr and myself and all at CRY 104FM in Yole and our associated community radio stations around the country, a very happy Christmas and New Year. <laughs>